This is The Doctor Is In, your bi-weekly podcast that discusses all things technical and not so technical. The Doctor Is In podcast is produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio, and sponsored by DX Engineering, helping you shrink the globe. See their website at www.dxengineering.com. And now, here's your host, QST editor Steve Ford, WB8IMY, and the doctor himself, Joel Hallis, W1ZR. Hello, I'm Steve Ford, WB8IMY. And I'm Joel Hallis, W1ZR. You definitely are. I think you're right. Joel, we need to get grounded here. Oh, we, okay. we need to get on a on a good ground. I mean, that's something that, at least for me, puzzled me from my earliest days as a ham. I mean, it seemed as though there were several types of ground. There was the RF ground, electrical ground, and then the instructors would tell me, well, your circuit board, it has a ground plane on it. And, and all this did at the time was serve to confuse me. But you'll untangle all this, right? Well, I don't know about that, but I'll do what I can here in the time <laughs> we have. You know, people focus on ground a lot, but if you think about it, radios work well in airplanes and in cars, and, and there really isn't a ground connection. If you tied a ground wire to an airplane, you'd have a, you know, it'd have to be very long. I always thought they just, you know, there was a big wire dragging behind it. And, well, that, you know. that could work, but <laughs> sort of limited in range. Actually, some antennas are sort of like that, but that's a topic. Anyway, yeah, the, the ground is um, an interesting topic, and there are different ones, and they're very different in terms of function and, and purpose. And I think the easiest one to start with is what I call the electric safety ground. And the idea of that is um, to keep you from getting electrocuted, which is always a good idea. Now, back when I started in the 50s, most equipment power cords had two-wire non-polarized plug, if you remember those. And you still see oh, them yeah. on some things. So-called double-insulated things have plugs of that sort. So you can plug it in either way, and uh, it doesn't matter. And there's no ground connection of any sort involved in that. That's okay for something that's double-insulated that won't uh, you won't connect to by accident. But in the old days, that went into your radio equipment. And, uh, you know, once it got in the radio equipment, one side of the power cord went to an on-off switch. The other side went to some common. And in some radio equipment, that common was actually the chassis of the equipment. I know. I <laughs> found that out the hard way once. But anyway. Yeah. yeah. And usually they had some kind of insulated layer around that, but that didn't work if you were trying to fix it. No. So what uh, happened was many people got shocked. And, you know, fortunately, you don't often get electrocuted by 120 volts, but you only have to do that once. And you, <laughs> But you can get elected by 120 volts. Of course, in those days, it was more like 110, but still. The, the next step was to actually have a polarized plug in which one side was wider than the other, and you could only plug it in one way. And the idea of that was the narrow side is the hot side, the wide side that you're more likely to put a paperclip in is the negative, or, or not negative, but the, uh, the common side that the fuse box goes into or electrical panel goes to the chassis of the electrical panel and to a ground rod as well as back to the pole on the street. So the idea being that the uh, the hot side or the, the narrow pins in the equipment then can be connected to the switch so it's turned off, so forth. And that, that was helpful, but it turns out in the old days, I don't think they do this anymore. They used to be wax paper capacitors, 0 0.05 microfarad capacitors on each side of the line going to the chassis. I remember so, seeing those. To sure. supposedly reduce the noise. Well, the problem is they got leaky, and what that meant was chances are no matter what kind of connection arrangement you had, the chassis 
ended up being hot. And you'd get into a situation where you'd uh, go to hook a coax cable to that radio, and the other end of the coax cable shield was grounded, and you'd have your hand on the radio and your hand on the coax shield connector, and uh, the shield side of the connector, and um, you would get zapped. I've done that many times. So I, with old equipment, which I uh, enjoy and have had for many years, usually the first thing I do is I replace the power cord with a, a three-wire grounded power cord that has three prongs and a green wire. The green wire goes to the chassis. That's the way most equipment comes nowadays. And what that does is that forces the outside container, the, the, the green wire in the uh, plug goes to the chassis or cabinet or both of the equipment. So if anything does happen to get connected accidentally inside the equipment to the chassis, it will end up going to this green wire. The green wire goes back to the circuit entrance panel and gets connected to the same ground that the neutral is connected to. And what that does is that uh, causes the circuit breaker to, to trip. And the idea being that that will protect you from electrocution. And it, uh, it does it by not by you being there like a ground fault interrupter, breaks the connection if you get in the path. This just blows the breaker immediately when you plug the thing in. Yes. Which is a good safety feature. So that's an electrical safety ground. And in my environment, each service entrance box is connected to a ground rod by, by National Electric Code standards. And in my case, it's also connected to about a 100-foot copper buried water pipe that goes out to the street. So it's it's well grounded there, but in my house, it's probably 75 feet from there to where my equipment is. So that's why that ground, even though the, the ground rod might be good and the, the ground of the water pipe might be good, the fact that I'm so far from it makes it unsuitable for other purposes like as an RF ground or anything else because the impedance is so high at RF. The impedance is nice and low at 60 hertz, which is what this is for, protect you from electrical shock. But you need some other kind of ground to deal with RF and lightning and that sort of thing. And that's the RF ground. That's the RF ground. And now there are two flavors of that. The first flavor, which I'll just discuss briefly, is is uh, the, the ground system that is half of a quarter wave antenna, such as a Marconi antenna or an end-fed quarter wave or a quarter wave vertical. It's fed against radials or some other kind of ground system. That ground system is half of the antenna. It has nothing to do with anything else, although it could, but it's generally separate because it could be out in the backyard far away. But that ground has to be right below the antenna, and the transmission line is connected one side to the antenna, one side to the ground system, and it sets up fields between the two that radiate. So that's an antenna ground system. The other kind of ground system that's an RF ground is the one that you have to keep RF signals, including lightning, which is tends to be similar to RF. That's true. It is an RF signal after all. Just a very powerful one. It is, and it you know it tends to have somewhat lower frequency components than much to what we do, but it is it is a f- fast rising pulse and acts like RF. So we need, for that, we need a low impedance connection to ground. And we want to have that preferably at the boundary between the house and the rest of the world. And I I think uh, at my house, I have an antenna entrance panel where all my transmission lines come in this one location. And that panel is grounded to ground rods and radials. And that's also tied to the ground rod that goes to the service entrance. So there's no potential difference between them. That's also a requirement of the National Electric Code. And the idea being any current that comes down the coax, particularly on the outer shield, which is outside of the shield, which is where most of the current from coupled RF signals will end up, gets shunted to ground. At that panel, I also have lightning arresters on each of the lines so that if there is a potential on the inner conductor, it tends to fire the arrestor and that will take that signal to ground. That keeps lightning and RF, coupled RF, from getting into the equipment. So that's kind of an RF ground. Yeah. 
and it needs to be a good solid ground with not just a ground rod, but in my opinion, multiple ground rods interconnected by buried wires, and the more, the, the better. And your other question was, what's a ground loop? Well, yeah, I hear that a lot. Somebody will say, uh, for example, if they're trying to operate something like FT8 and they've got their uh, computer sound card going to their radio, they'll pick up hum and they'll say, well, you've got a ground loop that's causing that. A ground loop is just what it sounds like. It's it's a interconnection of ground wires that makes a closed loop. And that's usually only a problem at audio, not at RF. So exactly the fact that you have multiple grounds that we just discussed, the RF ground and the equipment ground or the safety ground um, actually make a loop, but that doesn't cause a problem. What does cause a problem sometimes is a loop at an audio circuit that actually acts like a transformer winding, a one-turn transformer winding, and it will couple to other transformers and other things in the shack and bring in 60-cycle hum. So it's a good idea to break that. You can do that with uh, isolation transformers. You can do it with optical isolators. And sometimes just looking at the arrangement of the um, cabling, you can say, well, if I do this in a slightly different way, I won't close that loop and I will have, uh, won't have loops. Now, in my experience, they don't always cause a problem. It depends on the relative position compared to other things. Mm-hmm. I had a situation in which um, a dynamic microphone was, because of the windings in the dynamic microphone, was actually acting like a ground loop in a sense. It wasn't grounded, but it actually picked up signals from my power supply depending on where I was holding the mic and where the power supply was. So you can, you can get AC hum coupling between things very easily. That took me a long time to track down because sometimes it was there and sometimes it wasn't. Is ground loop as a term a misnomer, do you think, or confusing? No, I think it, it is a sensible term. And, and in a piece of equipment, for example, if you have shielded wire, you typically don't want to ground both ends to the chassis because that makes a loop and you'll cause current, can cause currents to run through the shields, which will couple to the wire inside and so forth. Uh, you typically put the ground the shield at the end where the most sensitive components are and keep coupled signals from getting into the wires that go into that uh, equipment. But I think it's it's descriptive. It's just people sometimes make too much of a fuss over it because, as I say, it doesn't really apply very much to RF equipment, and some people try to apply it there. I mean, you have a loop, but it doesn't cause any problems. So what if you pick up 60 cycles on your antenna lead? It's not going to radiate or anything. No. It's just do what it does. Now, what about, and I know we talked about this in a prior podcast, uh, the idea of grounding all of your station equipment, including your computer, together at a single point? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's part of the idea of the uh, RF ground is you should have such a uh, point in the station. And it's best to have a single point that goes from, I bring you all your uh, ground cables from Every piece of equipment, including your computer, if you can, and you can, you can get to the chassis of the computer. There's sure. always a screw you can get under somewhere. Tie them all together to a single point and run that point to your RF ground. It's much better to bring them all together than to have them daisy-chained one to the other because the current between the daisy chains can set up voltages between the equipment, which the lightning strike going that way, which can cause currents to run on other cables between the equipment, which can burn up things. Yeah. So by having them all at a single point, you tend to avoid having currents running between the equipment. It all tends to end up at the ground or not. It doesn't always quite work because you've usually got some other kind of connections that'll be in parallel, like coax shields are always in parallel with ground cables and so forth. But it's a good practice to try to do that, have a tree structure in which the root of the tree goes to the RF ground connection. And if I'm on the 16th floor, how do I do a ground? Well, well I was going to say, yeah. We use that same principle and you have a single point ground 
Make sure everything's grounded to it, including the metal desk that you sit at, <laughs> um, because that 16th floor is going to get hit by lightning more than other places, likely, unless there's a 19th floor that catches all of it for you. But you sort of make an, an island of ground that you're within, and you know, in the ideal case, it would be a Faraday-shielded room and so forth, and everything would be tied to the shield as it went, penetrated the shield. Your landlord may have a problem with that. He may. Uh, <laughs> but you know, just having all your equipment and all your furniture... <laughs> tied to a single point and having that go to the, uh, let's say the building steel, if you can get access to it, or even to the, um, if it's the best you can do, even just tying it to the green wire ground. So you have a floating ground system that eventually has a connection to ground, even though it's not a short RF connection, but, and that doesn't, you know, the whole thing will, will raise in potential if you get any kind of lightning coupling arrangement, yes. but there will not be currents between pieces of equipment and there will not be current between the equipment and you mm -hmm. if it's all tied together. But if you have a metal desk and you're sitting with your forearms on it, as I am with this desk right now, if you don't include the desk in that, you could easily end up having a problem. I would imagine. Well, Joel, let's take a break here from DX Engineering and we will be back. I'll be here. Our fellow hams have told us how much they love receiving the DX Engineering catalog. It's 132 pages of amateur radio heaven packed with competitively priced equipment. You'll find everything from multiband Yagis to whip antennas, the latest bass transceivers to mobile radios, and every accessory under the sun. But the catalog only represents a small part of what DX Engineering offers. When you visit DXEngineering.com, you'll find thousands of items from trusted names like Icom, Yesu, Kenwood, and Alinko. There's world-famous antennas from OptiBeam, E-Antennas, and M-Squared, Roan and American Towers, plus many more and shop a wide selection of innovative DX Engineering brand products. They're designed and manufactured by our team of amateur radio enthusiasts for hams just like you. Plus, you get the fastest shipping in the ham universe, and shipping is free on most orders over $99. Experience ham radio heaven at DXEngineering.com. That's DXEngineering.com. And we're back, Joel, and we have a question all the way from the United Kingdom this time. Right. Uh, this is Roger M0TJK, and he's asking, I am active on 40, 15, 17, and 10 meters with a 30-foot vertical and a 90-foot end-fed wire antenna. Since it will be several years before conditions improve much, if I were to invest in a monoband Yagi pointed at the U.S. from the U.K., which band would it be best to concentrate on for traffic across the pond when conditions permit? Well, that's a good question, and there are a lot of variables at play. Uh, perhaps the most significant being the time of day that you'll be operating, because the bands operate differently at, at, in uh, daylight and evening hours, as you know. And I guess you've mentioned some bands, and I guess you've, uh, you've not mentioned two of the bands that I would pick, but uh, we can talk about that. But if you are going to be operating in the evening of the band's use uh, listed, I would pick 40 meters, but I wouldn't eliminate 80 meters, which you didn't list, even though it's not on your list. Now, it's it's um, a little tough to make a Yagi for 80 meters, but if it's only going towards one direction, uh, wire Yagis are certainly possible. But I guess 40 meters would still be my first choice for a nighttime band towards the U.S. But during daylight of your bands, I would start with 17 meters. But again, 20 meters would be my first choice, even though it's not on your list, because the maximum usable frequency is more likely to get up to 14 megahertz than to 18 megahertz. And also because there tends to be more activity on 20 meters than 17 meters. Also, contests are a great, great way to make contacts. And uh, even though they're short contacts, most uh, contests don't include 17 meters. In fact, none of them do presently. That's, that's, yeah. that's probably yeah. true. I guess I always hate to say never, but <laughs> uh, similarly, you know, um, 12 meters and uh, 30 meters. But uh, if you operate CW, 30 meters is a good 
band only because it's a lower frequency and the, the maximum usable frequency is more likely to get there than it is to any of the other bands that we talked about for, for daytime operation. But that does suffer from less activity and again, it's not used in context. But, you know, you really have the tools available to gauge what will work in your location with your local topography and condition. Assuming you have an efficient 30-foot vertical, which means that there's a remote uh, tuner at the base or one close by connected by a short coax run and you have a good ground system, uh, that'll give you a good idea of what kind of signals to expect because your horizontal Yagi at least half wave high will have a 6 dB advantage due to, due to ground reflection gain. In addition, you'll have the gain of the Yagi, which will be a function of the size and element count. Thus, signals from the Yagi should be about 1.5 to 2 S units stronger than those from the vertical. Now, what that means is if you listen using your vertical, you'll probably get an idea of what kind of thing to expect from a Yagi on whatever band you're listening to at that time of day, just that it'll be 1.5 to 2 S units stronger. So if you can't hear anybody with the vertical, the chances are that if signals are 1.5 to 2 dB stronger, you won't hear them very well either. No. But if you can hear them relatively well, like you can hear them out of the noise, then they should be usable copy with a Yagi pointed in that direction. Yeah, well, one would think so. So that should give you, you know, if you record the time of day in the band and check each band and do it kind of systematically over a period of a few weeks and, and actually best over a few seasons, but depends on how long you want to wait to for this project. <laughs> but um, you'll get a good idea of what you might expect from a different antenna that's focused on the U.S. And um, that's probably a good, the best way to really find out because that takes into account topography around your property and interference levels from other signals and that sort of thing. Now, another thing to think about is you didn't discuss what mode you plan to use, but it's important to note that the operating mode will make a big difference. As we've discussed previously, uh, CW can be operated in a bandwidth of 250 hertz typically, and, and sideband requires 10 times that, typically 2,500 hertz, which means single sideband has 10 times as much noise, bandwidth, and noise than CW does. So that gives you an advantage that's just about the same as having a Yagi. So it's probably cheaper to go to CW than to build a Yagi, but yeah, but um, I, I would think so. Yeah. You have to, you have to like CW to do that. Not everybody does. So that's one thing to consider. And similarly, the um, the digital modes can operate in even narrower bandwidths and operate with lower signal to noise ratio. In fact, the significantly negative signal to noise ratio. And the only problem with that is uh, some of us think that that then the computer is having all the fun and, and you aren't. <laughs> Just look and see what the computer's been doing today on making contacts. I don't mean to disparage. Um, the digital modes, but you know, each mode has its own benefits and and uh, negatives. If you like working single sideband, then it doesn't matter how much better CW is if you're not going to use it. So keep that in mind, though, that that's another possibility is to, to change operating. Okay, thank you, Joel. If you have a question for the doctor, email us at doctor at ARRL.org. The Doctor is in podcast is sponsored by DX Engineering at www.dxengineering.com. Background music provided by Purple Planet at www.purple-planet.com. This podcast is copyright ARRL. All rights are reserved. Until next time, I'm QST Managing Editor Becky Schoenfeld, W1BXY, 73, and thanks for listening.